So we're in uh, Genesis chapter 4. Are you excited? Yes, I know. I, I'm excited. I'm pretty excited about that. It's a good thing, right? Um, yeah, you know, but it's interesting. I, I think, you know, I don't know if you've ever done this, but uh, because especially for those of us who have been a Christian for a while, right, we can sometimes kind of like, you know, we, we know the story, right? We, we, we know the whole Bible, right? You know, maybe we've read the whole thing. Maybe we haven't. At least we know the stories, you know, and kind of stuff. And, 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 you know, like, you know, some of us love to do this, even if we don't have never read the book, but we know the end, right? And, and so we know what happens in Matthew through Revelation. And so we're reading Genesis 1 through 3, and we kind of are always like grabbing, you know, that end and, and, and infusing it into chapter 3. Now, understand, all of Scripture is understood through Jesus, Old Testament and New. So we should do that. But I think it's also beneficial for us to sometimes just kind of go, okay, let's just try to forget everything that happens after Genesis 3. Let's pretend that this is the first time we're reading Genesis and the Bible, and we don't know how it ends. We don't know nothing. And so we read the first three chapters 17 times, right? Because 17 passages or 17 messages on the first three chapters I've done. But we read that, and we get to the end of chapter 3, and what do you think we would be thinking at that moment, if you can imagine not knowing the rest of the story. I, I know for me, I feel like, you know, the first thing I'd be like, wow, uh, like, you know, Adam and Eve, they really screwed up. I mean, hello, beautiful garden. I mean, you know, no pain, no suffering. I mean, you get to walk around without clothes. You know, it's just everything is going great. You know, this, what are you doing, right? I mean, wh what are you thinking? I mean, this is kind of just, it doesn't make sense. But, but you'd also think, you know, this reality that like after they sinned, that maybe there's like this tension there, right? Oh my gosh, that, that, that's it. I mean, this is the God who created them. And, and then they just like, you know, whatever, we're going to, you know, they, he gives them one thing not to do. Just, just do this one thing. Have you ever done that with your kids, right? Just one thing, okay? Don't touch your sister, okay? Just one thing, right? And they can't do it, right? We just freak. So this is the same thing. He gives them just one thing. And Adam and Eve can't handle it, right? I mean, they, they, just, they just freak out and they do. And so you're kind of thinking, at least I am, like at the end of three, like that's kind of it, right? I mean, what is, the, I mean, how are they going to, you know, get over this, right? I mean, they're done. They're, you know, God said they're going to die. Well, now they're going to die. You know, we know that, you know, they kicked them out of the garden. I mean, they are no longer in God's presence, right? They've been kicked out of the garden. They are out of the, they're not going to be able to get to the tree of life, which means they can't live forever, which means that they're doomed. This is, this is just all bad. This is just, it's, everything is just horrible and sin is just going to be, I mean, it's just going to continue to run rampant and it's going to be just bad. And then you turn to chapter 4. And again, we as Christians, I think, who know the rest of the story, miss some very important details in chapter 4. Because we just see, we just kind of go, see, I knew it. Look, murder. Now we're murdering people, right? We went from eating something we're not supposed to, now we're killing people, right? I mean, this, see, it's bad. And then Genesis just continues. It gets worse and worse and worse. And I mean, horrible things are going on. We got so bad that God's like, oh, I'm going to just flood the whole thing and get rid of it, right? And then we get into the, you know, Tower of Babel and all. Anyway, so it's just, we think, yeah, see, it's just horrible. See, they, outside of God's presence, they're doing just, they're going to just continue to sin rampantly. This is, it's done. It's ugly. It's horrible. 
But wait, there's some, pro- some surprising things that are going on in Genesis 4. Right? There's some really surprising things. Noticed that Adam and Eve, specifically Abel and Cain, are worshiping God. They're, they're making sacrifices to God, right? They're trying to honor God's will. They're trying to maintain and rebuild or somehow have a relationship with God. Wait a second. Adam and Eve, I mean, what do they do, right? They sin. God shows up. And what do they do? Like, they start blaming each other, right? Oh, God, it's your fault. You know, you send me this woman. You know, these women, they're horrible. I mean, look at her. They just make me tempted all the time, right? You know, I mean, we're, we didn't respond with repentance, there's no, no, in Genesis 3, there's no repentance there. There's no like, ah, oh, I'm sorry, God, I shouldn't have done that. That was horrible. No, it's like, no, what about, no, and the woman, the snake, she did, he tempted me, right? And, and then we get to Genesis 4, and Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, there's, they're trying to maintain this relationship with God. A little bit surprising, right? I thought, wait a second, they just kind of rejected God. They're going the other way. Sin's going to take them over, and they're going to be done. But more than that, God is still there. (laughs) Right? I mean, God is, I don't know, in my mind, I'm thinking into three, like God goes back to heaven and he's now going to watch from afar. Like I'm not doing this, like I'm not interacting with these people anymore. They they, they obviously are sinful. Now they have sinful nature. They're all going to be sinful. You would think, right? That that's kind of my mind, what I'm thinking at the end of three. And then four, it's like, wait a second. God's there. In verse 16, Cain says, or it says that Cain leaves God's presence. Wait, I thought they were already out of God's presence. So God's there? More than that, God is communicating. He, he's having a conversation with them. He's, he's, his voice can be heard. He's present and he's communicating. And this is maybe even more shocking. He's communicating with a murderer. <laughs> think about that, right? And so I think we find sometimes we, we kind of got to just jump over these things. But there's this reality that God, even in our sin, there's still God there. There's still his presence. There's still this pursuit that God has of his people. That despite what happened in Genesis 3 and getting kicked out of the garden, there's still some grace that is operating. God is still somehow able to be in their presence. God is still somehow able to communicate, and they are still somehow able to try to worship him. And so I want to give that perspective as we step into this story now of Genesis chapter 4 and Cain. Let me read the first seven chapters, or seven verses, just to get started. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. 
And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So we see here at the beginning, again, there's an effort made by Cain to worship God. There's an effort by him to sacrifice appropriately to God. And yet God does not receive his offering. You know, I think we can uh, sometimes, be, we have to be careful here in, in what's going on, right? Uh, I think sometimes we, you know, we can look at this and some people will say, well, I, this is because Cain offered fruits and vegetables or the, you know, the, 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 the wheat and the grain from the ground instead of a, a, a sin offering or a, you know, a, a lamb. And so that's why God didn't accept his offering. But I don't think that's true. I think in Scripture we see later on when the law is revealed in Leviticus, we find that there's actually a lot of different sacrifices, and some of them certainly require a blood sacrifice, but others are grain sacrifices and, and all of these things. And so I don't think that's what's going on here. So the question has to be asked, so why, why did God not accept Cain's offering? And I actually think the reason for that, actually, if we, if we look down below, we can, we can realize what's going on maybe before. I think the issue is that Cain's heart wasn't right. I think actually the issue is that Cain, you know, was expecting, you know, that God would bless him if he went through the hoops. You know, okay, God, I'm supposed to do this offering. Okay, well, here's the offering. Now, now bless me. Now, this is maybe what it means by the fact that God didn't accept Cain's, but did regard Abel's, that maybe Abel was getting blessed like material blessings. Maybe that's what was going on. And then Cain wasn't getting what he thought was due him. And so his attitude, his heart wasn't in the right place. I mean, if we think about this, maybe, you know, we've been there. I mean, don't we sometimes have that tendency to look at Christianity, at God, as just simply a religion, right? You know, if I just do X, Y, and Z, then God owes me. Like, you know, that, that somehow that I'm just trying to appease him by showing up on Sunday mornings, right? I, I've done my duty, right? I've shown up and I've worshiped him. I've sang the songs. I've had to read the, you know, the crazy scriptures. You know, I've had to listen to that guy drone on for 35 or 40 minutes. I mean, come on. I, I, you know, that's okay. I've done my duty, right? Now, don't I get something from that, right? Don't, don't God, aren't you happy with me now? Aren't you, aren't you appeased? Don't, don't you want to now bless me because of what I've done for you? I mean, I know I've been there, right? I, I've viewed worship that way. I've viewed my relationship with God that way. And I think a lot of us still struggle with that. When we don't feel like our offering is getting blessed, we can get really angry about that. We can get pretty frustrated. 
God, I'm trying to do everything right. And yet now I still have all these things going wrong in my life. I think so often, you know, when, when trials come, when suffering happens in our life, we just immediately go to the why question without recognizing that the why question is actually challenging who God is. Think about that. Why are you doing this to me, God? We're challenging the character of God. Is he a good God? His scripture tells us it's a good God. Do we believe that? The why question, I'm not saying we shouldn't, I mean, sometimes that's reality, right? That's where we're at. And we need to be honest with the Lord. The why question is based in actually a, a false perception of God. The question should be how, you know, what do I, how do I do this? How do I deal with this, right? So we see Cain here, he gets angry about this reality, but God is actually showing up. Uh, uh, do you get that, right? I mean, like by God not accepting Cain's offering because his heart wasn't right was a blessing. Right? God was like, no, 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 listen, I want to have an intimate love relationship with you. I want us to be close. I want to see you blessed. But the source of that blessing is not through you just doing a bunch of behaviors and checking off the list. The source of the blessing is connecting to me. And so he challenges him. He doesn't accept, he doesn't regard his offering simply to say, look, Cain, wake up. That's not what it's about. I want you to come to me with love in your heart. Not looking for me to do something for you. I want you to come to me on your knees in honor of what I've already done for you. Recognize that I want to be intimate with you. I want to have close contact with you. We see that God desires intimacy with Cain and that he will not settle. God will not settle for cheap religiosity. And this is why we have to ask the question, why are we here today? Is this just cheap religiosity? Or is it really because we know he loves us and we want to love him. And so by God not regarding Cain's offering, Cain's heart is hardened. He gets angry. He doesn't go, okay, okay, what, what's going on? Okay, how, how, do, how, do I, what's, how do I get through this, Lord? What, what is happening? How can I adjust? What, what, are we, what are you trying to tell me? How are you communicating with me right now? No, it's not that. It's like anger. Oh, oh, I see how you are, God. Yeah, see, I went through all the steps. I did what I'm supposed to do, and then you just disregard that. You're like, it's not a big deal. Okay, we're not going to give you. So, you know, why am I even trying? I mean, what's the point? You can sense this attitude in Cain. Let's read on, verses 8 to 10. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, 
where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Famous line, am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So Cain, I think thinking a bit like, again, so what does it matter? I do the right things and God doesn't respond the way I think he should. And so why not just do the bad things? And then he finds someone, which I think so many of us can do as well. We find someone who it looks like they're getting blessed and we get jealous. And we're like, okay, I'm going to take that guy out. I'm going to attack that person because look at them. Oh, they're so goody two-shoe. I'll show them. Of course, Cain took it to an extreme point, of course, and took Abel's life. But then God shows up again. What is going on with this God guy? <laughs> and he's coming to call for repentance from Cain. He comes and shows him and says, Cain, where's Abel? <laughs> Again, listen to the passive aggressiveness. Oh, Abel? Uh, I, 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 I don't know. Is that, oh, your favorite, Abel. Oh, yeah, I haven't seen him. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't take care of him. I mean, that's kind of your job, isn't it? Right? You know what I'm saying? Is that right? I mean, that, that's what I sense here, right? Cain's like this passive aggressive, oh, I'm not my brother's keeper. That's your deal. I don't know. He's your favorite. So where is he, right? And he responds again with a hardening of his heart. God shows up and says, hey, what have you done? It's similar to God showing up in the garden with Adam and Eve. Adam, where are you? What have you done? Have you eaten of that tree that I told you not to eat of? Cain, like his father... <laughs> doesn't respond with repentance, but responds with accusation at God. Well, it's, that's, you're supposed to take care of Abel. It's not, I'm not my brother's keeper. <laughs> God is deeply saddened by Cain's sin, but he draws close to him you know, I, I, I think we, we too often in our minds have this perspective that when we're in sin, that God is distant from us. Now, it is, it's true that sin separates us. That, that's true, right? I mean, that's the garden happened, right? God kicked them out of the garden. There's a sense of presence, right? But it's not complete separation, Actually, and, and I think it was in the book Gentle and Lowly. I don't Gentle and Lowly. I don't remember the author's name. It just it just coming to me now. But um, I think it was in the book Gentle and Lowly, where I, the author highlights this reality that I think is very true in Scripture: that when we are sinning, in the midst of our sin, Jesus' tendency is not to lean away from us, but it's to lean into us. He wants to draw us back. He's empathetic. Well, not empathetic because he's never sinned, but he's sympathetic to our sin. 
And he's, no, 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 don't go that way. Come back to me. Come back to my heart. Do my will. But we too often, again, I think we're in our sin. We think God is distant. He's away. He's far from us. And that is, I think, the lie of sin. The lie of sin is that God will never forgive us. The lie of sin is that God, no, that's it. He's way far away. You'll never get him back. No. God loves us. And he's drawn to us even in our sin. And God desires for Cain to repent so that God can forgive him and they can get past this. Because the reality is, is God will not accept fake regret. We were talking about this a little bit in our prayer time this morning. You know, our, when we sin or when we're confronted with our sin, do we, are, are, are we really sorry, right? Are we really repentant? Are we just sorry that we get caught? Or are we sorry that we actually sinned against our Father? Right, having the right perspective is what leads to true repentance, where we really will turn from our sin. See, God's not going to accept just regret. He's not just going to, you know, oh, you know, just to give a, a cheap apology. No, he's calling us to real repentance in order to experience real forgiveness. Because God wants real relationship. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Verse 11, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth, God says to Cain, to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, mm, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. <laughs> so after God confronts Cain on his improper attitude in worship, Cain gets angry. And sins. And then God confronts him on his sin. And Cain is just passive aggressive and doesn't want to admit his guilt. And so then God goes to the next level of pronouncing punishment. <laughs> but Cain continues to harden his heart and rejects God's pursuit. 
God doesn't want to lose Cain. This whole time, he's continuing to pursue him. He doesn't have to, but he wants to because he loves Cain. And so he continues to pursue him. But at the same point, at, the, at this point, he gets to that where reality of that Cain is not willing to repent of his sin. So he's like, all right, there is a punishment that now comes because of your unwillingness to repent. So he drives him from the land. He says that the, the land, now again, this is, this is his livelihood. That, that he's the one that's been growing these crops, right? This is part of the sacrifice that he's making. He's giving of the crops of the ground that he has built himself, grown himself, like that he has put together. Now God's saying, you know, the ground is not going to produce for you anymore. Now you're going to be dependent on other people. You can't provide for yourself. Punishment, it gets this reality. And so Cain, again, you think, okay, maybe now Cain gets it. Ah, you're right, God, what am I doing? I'm so sorry, Lord, that I've rejected you. So sorry that I killed my brother. But no, Cain hardens his heart again. (laughs) And accuses God again. Oh, this is horrible. I, I can't, this is so unfair. I can't believe you're making this my punishment. I mean, hello. I mean, I'm trying to live here and now I can't. I can't even grow anything. So now I'm going to be out there. And I'm going to depend on other people. They're just going to kill me. It's too much. I can't bear this. And it's hard to know. I mean, there's grace in this, right? This, this, this mark that God puts on him. There is grace in that. And the grace is simply this, that I think God is longing, just like he did with Adam and Eve, longing for their repentance and giving them more time, right? He's like, no, I don't want you to die right away because actually at the time, right, the family in the tribe of Cain, the the families that they would have been, they would have been living there with them, the, the law would have been that, you know, blood for blood. He killed Abel, he should be killed. And so there's grace in that, that God would maybe have, that he would maybe someday come and return to God. But I also think there's even punishment in it too, a deeper punishment that no, it's not going to be easy for you. Almost like Jonah, throw me over the ship. I'd rather die than go God's way. A little bit maybe that with Cain here as well. I just, you know, I'm just going to die. I mean, people are gonna, they're just going to kill me. It's going to be done. So there, God, see, you're not even going to be able to get that out of me, right? Because I'm just going to be gone and I won't care anymore. Oh, no. No, no. I'm going to put a mark on you to make sure no one kills you. So there's this, I think, tension in that. But again, we see this hardening of Cain's heart. And what does he do? It says in verse 16, turns and leaves the presence of God. How many Christians do you know that when punishment for their sin comes, even just the consequences of their sin comes, they get mad at God. They turn their back on him and walk away. 
Have you done it? Maybe even just for a few minutes or a few days or a few weeks or a few months. Have you done it? Are you doing it now? <laughs> Probably not. You're in the room. I think we have a tendency within us, again, to think we know. If we're not worshiping God right, and he challenges us on us, <laughs> challenges our heart, we're like, what? Come on. I went to church. I remember these, memorized these passages of scripture. What do you want from me? And then we follow that up with sin, and he confronts us on our sin. We're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, come on. What are you doing? It's, it's, it's just a little sin, not a big deal. Come on. And then he confronts us on our unrepentance and punishes us for our sin. And we again, like, all right, if that's the way you treat your kids, I'm out. God's desire is actually to save Cain, not destroy him. Again, he wants him to return. This is, this is the purpose. This is the point of punishment. We just think sometimes that God's just this fickle God, right? You know, he just, I don't know where he came up with that punishment. That doesn't make sense to me. It's just he just is mean and evil and just a wrath-filled God, and he just wants to make my life miserable. No, we have a God who punishes with purpose. And his purpose is always restoration. He's calling us to restoration. And that's what he's doing with Cain. He desires to save Cain, not destroy him. But he won't force Cain to return. God's not going to beg us. He's not going to twist our arm. He's going to appeal to us. He wants us. He's going to try to attract us. But we have to choose it for ourselves. So the surprising insight, I think, of Genesis chapter 4 is that despite what happened in Genesis chapter 3, God is still there. He's still active. And indeed, this is the entire rest of Scripture. We see this reality that God never leaves. <laughs> he is continuing to be there, continuing to confront people, continuing to interact with them, continuing to speak to them. This is why, just, you know, just a really quick, you know, God speaks. I know that can be for some of us really hard to get our minds around, that God is still speaking today. I'm not saying that he's still writing scripture. The canon is closed, all right? There's no more scripture coming. But God is still interpreting that scripture in our minds in order to bless us and to teach us and to develop us and to lead us. God's speaking. He is alive and active. Hebrews 4.12, right? He's alive. The Bible is alive and active because it's Jesus. Jesus is the word. He's alive. And he's still speaking. And this is a reality throughout Scripture. God continues to speak to the Israelites, to King Nebuchadnezzar, to other. I mean, it's like it's not like just those who are chosen people. He's continuing to speak, and he still does today. We see in Hebrews as well, chapter one. In the past, God spoke to us through the prophets and through the priests and through the kings. But today, in these last days, God has chosen to speak to us through his son. Right? 
He's still speaking. He's still interacting. He's still a part of this world. He still is confronting us. He's still calling us. But the question remains, will we listen? Or will we harden our hearts? Do you have a hard heart? Seems to me that hard hearts come from distrust and arrogance. And so now it's story time. So basketball, uh, when I was younger, um, don't, 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 Mike, just don't. Yeah, you're six foot, whatever, and that's just not fair. Yeah, basketball, oh yeah. When I, <clears throat> just stop, all right? Five foot seven and three quarters, thank you very much. But um, <laughs> basketball, so when I was younger, I, was, I loved basketball. Favorite sport by far, played baseball, played other things, and, but basketball, that was, that, that, was, that was it. Loved basketball, and I was pretty good at basketball, um, <clears throat> even though I couldn't dunk. But uh, so high school, okay, I finally get into high school. Like this is, you know, this is the big dream for a kid, right? You get into high school. It's not college yet. It's high school. And you just, you know, I remember going to those, actually, I really got a bad story about that. It's all a different time. But anyway, I remember going to basketball games uh, as a kid, right, with my parents. And my dad loved basketball, and he taught me everything I knew, basically. But anyway, I, we, we would go to basketball, high school basketball games, and we would live, sit in that just packed gym, and the crowd going crazy, and watching these guys, these stars, right? And I loved the beginning of the game, because they turn all the lights down, and the spotlight, right? And they introduce all the starters, right? You know, that whole thing, right? And just the dream, right? You know? So I get to high school. I'm like, here it comes, man. We're starting to get there, right? And maybe it's possible. I'm going to be one and those names called on you know, Friday nights. It's going to be great. And so freshman year, and I'm on the freshman team, and I am the starting point guard on the freshman team, right? And that's pretty good, right? It's freshman team. All the freshmen, I'm like starting point guard, right? It's great. Loved it. So fun. Enjoying it. The whole thing. Halfway through the season. Season's about 24 games. Halfway through the season, 12 games or so in. The head coach... <clears throat> Coach Dickinson, <clears throat> hard to say his name. <laughs> he comes to me one day at practice after a game and says, Vandermark, you got to deal with your attitude. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? Because I had this issue. I don't know why, but basketball is like a hot button for me for whatever reason. And on the basketball court, I would let out my anger, all right? Uh, and so, um, so he says, you got to deal with your attitude. And I'm like, yeah, I kind of go, oh, okay, okay, I, yeah, I can see that. I probably lose my cool every once in a while, you know, that's the kind of thing, you know. And he says, so, I'm putting you on the bench until you fix it. I'm like, what? Huh? So I'm like, okay, I'm going to be cool about it. You know, I went to talk to my dad about it. Yeah, yeah, son, that's probably, probably a good thing, you know. You know just, just take it. You'll be all right, right? So I'm like, okay, a couple games, we sit on the bench. We'll be all right. It'll be, it'll be cool. We'll be good. So in practice, I'm like working really hard, not showing any emotion. And the coach yells at me over and over again. I mean, even if I just like go like this, oh, because I missed a shot or whatever. He's like, Vandermark, what are you doing? Knock it off, you know, this kind of thing. I mean, he's just all over me, right? And so uh, I play, I think, um, six seconds the rest of the year. And the six seconds was uh, <clears throat> at the end of the game, they were getting blown out by 20. 
Uh, and there was, you know, the ball out of bounds. And so he said, hey, Vandemark, go in, throw the ball in, threw the ball in, and six seconds ticked down, and the game was over. <clears throat> um, oh, yeah. I was mad, right? Just for literally for years, uh, this stuck with me. Uh, the next year, I quit basketball. I'm done. Not playing this anymore. If that guy's the coach, right? If this is the situation, just done. Because I and part of it was I felt like I made a difference, right? I felt like I changed. I felt like I was working on it, and I got nothing in return, right? I got nothing, like no reward for that. And so, uh, you know, from this, I, this reality that hard hearts, right? My heart hardened to the point that I, I would see this guy like he went and became a varsity coach at a different school and they like won a championship, state championship. And I'm like, he's horrible. That coach is just horrible. Like, I mean, everything he could do, he would see me in the hall after that season, right? I'd see him in the hall and I'm like, hey, Vandemar, how's it going? He's like, Right? I mean, anything he tried to do to reach out and to kind of like somehow kind of, nope, everything I interpreted was ugly and evil and horrible because my heart was hard against him and it did become bitter. Literally years before I finally was like, God's like, ah, you got to deal with this. <laughs> and then he said to me, God, he says, and until you fix this, you're sitting on the bench. I'm like, what? Come on! <laughs> anyway. So, applying this to our life, is your relationship, do you have a relationship with God or a religion? What motivates you to show up on Sunday mornings? What motivates you to open up the Bible and read it? What motivates you to pray? You know, in, in Matthew 7, it's a harsh passage, but in Matthew 7, it talks about these people that are casting out demons in Jesus' name. They're doing all these miracles in Jesus' name, and Jesus says to them, shocking, away from me, you evildoers. You never, I never knew you. Do we have a relationship with God or do we just have a religion? Are we just trying to appease God? Are we just trying to make ourselves feel better? Or is this just fire insurance just in case? You know, God will confront us about our worship because he loves us. If you feel like he's not regarding your sacrifice, don't get mad. Well, I went through all the hoops. I did the right things. I checked off the box. Come on. Don't harden your heart. He loves you. He wants greater intimacy with you. And true worship is motivated by his love. It's when we understand his love, the fact that Jesus died for you. That's what draws us into true worship. John 4, 24, right? True worship is in spirit and truth. How about when you sin? Do you respond with repentance or arrogance? 
You feel like you know better than God? I mean, come on, God. It wasn't, I, it wasn't really that bad. I mean, really, I'm not, I didn't really want to do it. I just, like, happened to do it. Like, God doesn't know your heart. <laughs> True repentance comes when we humbly accept that he is the one who's perfect. Romans 3.23, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When we accept that and understand that, we are sinful. We make mistakes. But God is perfect, and if he's perfect, then he knows. And then when discipline comes, does it lead to your surrender or rejection? When discipline comes, do you turn to God or away from him? Demanding that God would give in to our will <laughs> is the road to hell. True surrender, true surrender happens when we trust that God's will is good. Jeremiah 29, 11, right? For I know the plans I have for you, plans to bless you, right? Plans to care for you, plans to love you. Do you believe it? Or when struggle comes, do you yell out, why, God? If you know that God is good and his plans for us are good, if we know that, then the why question is, why, we don't have to ask that question. He loves us. I don't have to ask why he's doing this. I just need to know how. What is he trying to teach me in it? What is he, where is he at in this? How do, I, how do I manage this? How do I get through this with him? All right, China, I want you to come up. <laughs> Church, uh, have you experienced a hard heart in your life? And not just with a basketball coach. He was a horrible basketball coach. <laughs> Have you experienced a hard heart with God? Maybe you're on that road right now. Maybe you feel like your sacrifice is not being accepted by him. And it's ticking you off. Maybe you've sinned, but you're not feeling like you're getting much grace from God. And he's challenging you on it. Or maybe the punishment has already come. And you're feeling the tendency to just turn and run. You know, this can be maybe a little bit of a challenge uh, or a, a bit of a, uh, uh, a debatable point. But I believe that God does not harden people's hearts. We always have a choice. But the actions of God, we can choose what to do with it. When he approaches us, just like this coach, approaches me, trying to bring reconciliation, trying to show that he loves me, I can either receive that as love or I can harden my heart and reject it. 
right? God doesn't harden hearts. We harden our hearts when we have wrong perspectives about who he is. Heavenly Father, we do lift your name on high. You are a mighty and awesome God who loves us dearly and who sent your son to come. And Jesus willingly came and gave his life for us, expressing clearly his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amazing to think of your deep love for us. Help us to remember that and to know that and to, in, and to embrace that, that we would live our lives fully for you because you have given your life fully for us. Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts. Lord, continue to reach out to us, continue to pursue us, continue to share and comfort and be there with us. Don't give up on us. Help us to be open and humble. Help us to be repentant. Help us to trust you and to know that you are good. Thank you for your word and how it fits so well together. And Lord, I thank you for this chapter that you led me to. And I was just going to read a portion of it, but I, I, I'm, we got a little bit of time, so I'm going to use it and I'm going to, I'm going to read the whole thing. Um, cause it's just like, it's, you just go, okay, yeah, God, you're good. Um, Hebrews <laughs> chapter 12. Therefore, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure God. Endure, excuse me. It is for discipline that you have to endure, period. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the fathers of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your dropping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. 
Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose word made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant." and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And then let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. What a great chapter, amen? God bless. Have a great day, guys.